Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we hear from Erica Harris, a woman who was given the gift of life after being told she had only two months to live. That was 12 years ago, and she's here to share her story. We're also talking about the latest diet and fitness trends and what those sexual dreams might mean. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. 2,750 solid organ transplants were performed in Canada in 2021. That was a 6% increase compared with 2020, 3% increase compared with 10 years ago. In retrospect, my guest saw that there were definitely signs that something was wrong, but she completely missed putting them all together. She was exhausted, but assumed that all young moms were equally as tired. She had other symptoms too, like extensive night sweats, which she attributed to hormonal changes. She had developed an intense rash on the surfaces of both hands and eyelids that she chalked up to eczema. It had not returned since treatment years ago. She learned that she had an aggressive leukemia, which had set the stage for a worldwide search for an organ, as her only brother was not a match. She's here on why she is alive today after having been given a diagnosis or um, a diagnosis of an aggressive cancer and only two months to live. She is Erica Harris, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Erica. Hello, Maureen. Gosh, it's an honor to be back on the show with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it's wonderful to have you on the program tonight to talk about this. I'm, I'm so glad that uh, you are alive and well, um, but it must have been pretty shocking 12 years ago, a mom of young babies, uh, thinking that you're just tired like everybody else, like all the other exhausted mothers out there, only to be handed a sentence of only two months to live. What yeah. was that like to receive that when you had two little babies? And how old were the babies again at the time? Yeah. So when I was um, first diagnosed, I was still nursing my youngest son. He was two. I was nursing him for a little bit longer. And my oldest was just four years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, it must have been absolutely shocking. So much must have been going through your head, not it only was, to be diagnosed. Was, yeah, with that. I was just completely blindsided. To be honest, I had always called myself the poster child for health and wellness. I had served as a very successful sports chiropractor here in Vancouver. Uh, I owned and operated my own successful practice on the west side of Vancouver. Um, you know, pr- practicing what I preached by every measure in terms of. Um, inspiring my community to live its healthiest status, peak, reach their peak in health and sport. And I did the same. And cancer was certainly not on my agenda. I did not see this fire-breathing dragon of cancer coming my way. I hadn't even complained of feeling sick or unwell. And, um, and it, yeah. You basically was, had been di- diagnosed with an aggressive leukemia. Is that right? That's right. And um, I did not respond even to the um, harshest of salvage chemotherapy regimens. I was awarded a two-month terminal uh, prognosis back in 2012. I was denied all further medical uh, treatments aside from palliative care by Vancouver General Hospital, our province's leading hospital. This prognosis, this dire prognosis, was even confirmed by a leading leukemia institute in Seattle, uh, Fred Hutch. And I went home. I prepared for the worst. I fought to go home, and but I expected the best, Maureen, and I pursued any and everything in the natural healthcare realm, and um, miraculously, I, I, I achieved this, what's called in the medical world, a spontaneous 
really miraculous remission um, from doing that. I really transformed from within somehow. I pursued any and everything. I really fueled my mind, my body, my soul, and I really just awakened from within somehow. Mindfulness, meditation, I just changed the way I saw the world. And um, I adopted this calm I had never otherwise had before. I, I assure you there's no greater wake-up call than hearing the words you have two months to live. And, um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sure not. Um, but you know, it's, um, you mentioned that you had a spontaneous remission and, um, you know, you went through a life transformation of your own body, mind, spirit, um, you know, to achieve a sense of calm, but, there was also, you know, other reasons that you're alive today. And, and did you go home with that two-month diagnosis of, or prognosis um, of only two months to live back in 2012? I did. And did you then start researching yourself? What did you, what, how did it get to the next steps? Yeah, great question, because there's a long story even after this. Um, yeah, so um, the quote-unquote cure to prevent against relapse is what's called a um, bone marrow transplant. And um, so you first have to be in full remission to qualify as a recipient, as a potential recipient for this bone marrow transplant. And um, so until I was in remission, this was not, I was not eligible. There was no hope. Um, And once I achieved remission, uh, only then, believe it or not, this complete stranger, Maureen, rose to help from halfway around the world in my time of need Um, after this worldwide search had been hailed on my behalf to find a perfect donor for this much-needed bone marrow transplant. Um, He is this young mountaineering adventurer, believe it or not. He was um, really young at the time. He rose up to help me. Uh, And my blood type changed from O negative to A positive, believe it or not, which I always considered to be the best score. Um, And I grew strong. I was back to hiking every mountain and soaring down them all on my skis with my babes in tow. And I was just, you know, the happiest. And I literally started to lose my breath. I just couldn't seem to catch enough air. And at first my physicians, you know, just kind of thought I was so active after transplant. And we missed this little process. Well, not so little. Um, when my new hearty immune system had awoken and looked around and decided it didn't recognize my own lungs and embarked on this fierce process of rejection and attacked my lungs in a process called bronchiolitis obliterans. Literally, Maureen, my lungs were obliterated. Um, I fell to 80 pounds. I was crazy sick on full-time oxygen. And my only chance of survival at that point in 2015 um, was a double lung transplant. My guest is Erica Harris. She is the recipient of a bone marrow transplant and a double lung transplant, and she joins me on the line from Vancouver, British Columbia. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Erica. My pleasure, Maureen. So I just want to um, just take a little trip back. I'm I'm not sure uh, how great it is to look backwards, but I really appreciate um, you talking about this to help people out there who are waiting for organs, who are experiencing or have gone through an organ transplant, um, and um, what what it was actually like for you. I mean, you're so upbeat, you're so optimistic, your website is 
risetoday.com. Everything about you is positive. Um, but it took more than a positive attitude, I am sure, to get you this far down the pathway. And so when you receive the diagnosis of you only have two months to live, you have two little guys, four and two, and all of a sudden it's like, what do I do? And you've had your bone marrow transplant and you have rejection, and now all of a sudden you need a double lung transplant. How did that search go? What was it like? Who gave you their lungs? And, and what has it been like for you since that time? Yeah, let's talk about it. There were so many emotions, right? Like for something great to happen to me, something terrible had to happen to someone else. And that was so much to grapple with in that time, right? And um, uh, I grew very, very, very sick. I wouldn't have even survived a summer cold. Uh, had these lungs not come when they did, I would not be here speaking with you today. Um, uh, miraculously, I have just been blessed to meet um, uh, my donor's husband, and this has been a incredibly moving experience for me on every level. And um, when you talk about emotions, and my gosh, I can't even mm-hmm. begin. There's, there's so many. I mean, gratitude, but um, heartfelt gratitude, and 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 um, so much that comes in tow with that uh, humility. Uh, also, like questioning your sense of worthiness, right? Like. Uh, is this amazing family who shared such an incredible gift through all of their kindness and generosity going to think I'm worthy of this incredible gift that they've shared with me? And, you know, why me? Why did I get to survive? And it makes you question so much. So it's this incredible wave of emotions. But, yes, because of the kindness and generosity of these incredible donors and the donor family, believe it or not, they had been on the donor list since the early 70s before many of us even knew about organ donation, that any of this was even possible. And I cannot encourage your um, audience enough to register their decision to donate organs, to register on the International One Match Stem Cell Registry, the Bone Marrow Registry, and to donate blood. Like you can be a superhero today for someone and, you know, for someone's family because of these amazing people and the kindness and generosity that they extended I get to be here to be mom to my kids like there's no greater gift you know I'm just so compelled to pay it all forward through the efforts that I now do I mean it's just such an incredible story and you know people listening out there would think that it was easy because of your attitude your positivity your your just incredible connection with life and your desire to inspire others. You did a TEDx talk uh, sharing your story about this. Things haven't been easy, though, um, with your business. And and tell me also as well about some of the um, other side effects, if you will, that you experience. And what can somebody with who's thinking or needing an organ transplant, what can a recipient um, expect with an organ transplant? Sure. I always say hold on to hope. And I am one incredibly happy girl. Don't get me wrong. And it it doesn't dismiss how hard the journey was. I always say the harder we fall, the higher we bounce on the rebound. And I did. I fell really hard. And those days were really hard to get through. Um, 
but hold on, you know, just hold on because we always have to believe that something wonderful is about to happen. And um, I truly just feel like the luckiest girl in the world. Believe it or not, I've had 10 bonus, 10 and a half bonus years already, you know, after hearing the words, I had two months to live. And that's because of the kindness and generosity of strangers all over the world. Mm-hmm. But to this day, I mean, you've gone through a lot of side effects and you continue to need medications yeah. and yeah. Uh, transfusions yeah. and yeah. Uh, procedures. So it's sure. not yeah. as though somebody will receive an organ and then that's it. No, no. Um, you know, every day is a gift that we are blessed with, and um, uh, it is not without hardships. Um, you cannot go through that journey unscathed. I have lost the vision in my right eye. I have endured significant kidney damage as a result um, of complications that had arisen. You know, I've lost a lot of my bone density from losing my cycle so early um, from salvage chemotherapy. Um, I get a lot of skin cancers uh, from the harsh uh, immunosuppressive medication and the whole body radiation. You know, all the treatments, I've gone through a crazy story, but all the treatments that have saved my life also risk my life in another way. But I assure you, this whole process never lets you forget how lucky we all are, not just myself, but how lucky we all are to really live today. You know, and it's just such a gift to wake up happy. And it's, yeah. Yeah, it sure is. You know, today I was, I happened to have have to catch a train somewhere and um, I just saw this speeding train going by and, you know, I took a little video of it because I thought, you know, life seems to go by so quickly and, and sometimes we forget to just savor the moments and, you know, and, and make a stop, you know, be appreciative, well, so be right. grateful. Yes. You're so right. Like in my previous life, as I've come to call it, you know, I used to live on autopilot. Like I was so successful in my career, always wondering like what's coming next, always focused on what's coming next. Like um, go, 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 go. I never paused long enough to really sink into the the calm and the moment and the Mm -hmm. beauty, the beauty of right now, you know, because just like you said, we're we're all going so fast. But then when you hear you've got 60 days to live, gosh, you, you really look back on everything and you're like, gosh, I missed so much and I still have so much living to do. You know, it was the best gift, oddly enough, hearing I had 60 days to live. Absolutely. I mean, you just embody the spirit of inspiration and I know you inspire others so much. How can people learn more? Well, first of all, I'd like to say, what would you like to say to people out there who might be going through something like this um, or something similar or have a loved one? And then I'd like to Uh, for you to let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you. Gosh, reach out. You know, together we are stronger. And form that community. Be be very proactive in the steps that you take to take charge of your own health and your own wellness in the ways that you're able. And, you know, in that two-month prognosis time with cancer, I took my eye off cancer and I just focused on fueling myself to maximize the moment of now. Right. And, and feeling my general health and wellness. I couldn't control cancer, but I could control my environment. Um, hold on. Yes. Reach out. Form your community of support. You can still feel so alone unless you're talking to people who truly understand the depth of hurt that you're going through. Reach out. There's, be active on social media. Find your groups. Reach out to, to us at risetoday.com. Um, uh, I also have a great podcast that people find really helpful that talks all about opening up the conversation about hardship and sharing tools for, you know, that we've all used to overcome, to rise, survive, and even thrive through 
life's hardest of days. It's called the Rise Today Inspirational Podcast. I hope you find it of value. And the website is risetoday.com. Erica Harris, thank you so much. You are such an inspiration, and I wish you good health for many, many years to come. Thank you, Maureen. It's been an honor. You know, a lot of people feel like COVID is over. We're not wearing masks, even in public places, even on in the airports or on airplanes, um, at the theater, concerts. So people have gone away with those. But one thing, so we're almost forgetting about COVID-19. But you know what? Some people can't forget about COVID-19. And that is those who have experienced long COVID. And you might experience long COVID yourself if you should get a COVID infection. And we're seeing a lot of people being reinfected with COVID, having had COVID two, three, four, and five times. Well, a shocking report reveals that 59% of long COVID patients suffer from organ damage a year later. This was brought to my attention a little bit because I had seen an article on Instagram um, about a woman who was 46 years of age and two years prior, she had actually experienced a heart attack. She had experienced a widowmaker heart attack, not just any heart attack, but a widowmaker heart attack, which typically and quite often results in sudden death for people. A widowmaker heart attack, and we've talked about this with Dr. John Weissel on the program in the past, happens when you have a blockage in the largest artery in your heart. That means that your blood cannot move through your left anterior descending artery. And that provides 50% of your heart's muscle blood supply. Immediate treatment is crucial for, in order for a chance to survive. Many people don't survive this. She was a woman, she explained in her story, that two years prior, she actually was rushing around in her life, very, very busy. She had her own fitness center, and she was uh, starting a class when she felt an explosion in her chest. And next thing you know, she found herself in the coronary care unit, um, having stents put in her heart, and she'd been diagnosed with a widowmaker. And so this is a very real situation with, that long, uh, patients with long COVID who've been diagnosed with long COVID suffer from organ damage a year later. I have a patient in my clinical practice who has suffered from depression about a year and a half for about a year and a half since the diagnosis of COVID. And that has to do with chronic fatigue, aches and pains in his muscles and joints. Um, he's unable to work. And the doctor attributes it to long COVID as well. I think we have to be very careful. I know that I've even stopped talking weekly about COVID on the show. It doesn't mean that I don't wear my mask on a plane or in a public area. I still do, in part because I understand about long COVID. and I don't want to get long COVID. And also, when I get a respiratory infection, it hits me bad. And since I've been wearing masks since the pandemic began, my respiratory, my annual winter respiratory infections have decreased immensely. Now, that Correlation does not mean causation. That could also be attributed to the fact that a large percentage of my clinical practice has gone online, and so I'm not in the office nearly as much. 
seeing patients in the office nearly as much as I was. And so that's a big difference as well. So that could also be a contributing factor that I'm not being exposed to 20 people a day sometimes, um, people who oftentimes are older and are more risk for uh, respiratory infections and more, you know, I might have been contracting it from those patients. Sometimes they came from long-term care facilities. And so that could have been another aspect of it as well. Um, but COVID is something I don't want to get. And I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said that they never wear masks. They don't believe in masks. There's two schools of thought on masks, and a lot of you might feel that way out there. There are two schools of thought. There's the scientist school of thought, and then there's the the real scientist school of thought, and then there's the Facebook scientist school of thought. So, um, <laughs> But there's really one. Masks are pretty darn effective. But this particular person didn't believe in them, was eye-rolling, you know, didn't feel that uh, they should be wearing them anymore. And that person has had four COVID infections. It's like, okay, it's only an N of two, myself and that person, but I haven't had any. And I have been uh, a diligent, an absolute diligent wearer of thy mask. And you know what? Don't be shy. You should be wearing a mask as well. Long COVID is also known as post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2 infection. It's a condition where individuals continue to experience symptoms or develop new symptoms after recovering from an acute COVID-19 infection. The symptoms of long COVID can be wide-ranging. They include things like fatigue, shortness of breath, chest pain, joint pain, headache, brain fog, difficulty sleeping, and depression or anxiety. I've told you about two patients that I know of. There's more than that. I've had more in my clinical practice as well, but this gentleman stands out to me because he has suffered the joint pain, the headaches, the brain fog, and now the depression and anxiety. And this is what people are also at risk at. When When I hear people say, COVID is just a little cold, COVID is just like the flu, the flu doesn't kill anybody, Well, the flu certainly does. Um, You know, people have all of these myths that they mouth, and oftentimes they are wrong. I know young people in their 20s who've gotten sick for eight days. Who wants to get sick for eight days with a fever and chills and muscle aches? But long COVID is also a risk, and we have to think about, do I want to get long COVID, especially if you are a person of advancing age? And who isn't a person of advancing age? We're all advancing age. And what kind of a life is that if you experience long COVID and you're in your 30s? This could go on for a long time. According to a recent extensive study on long COVID patients spanning over 12 months, 59% of patients continue to exhibit organ damage a year after experiencing initial symptoms, including those who were not severely affected at the time of their virus diagnosis. That is significant. You can have mild symptoms today, might last for two or three days, and then a year from now, you could still have evidence of kidney damage, liver damage, joint damage, um, brain damage. It can have an effect on cognition, mood, memory. This is such a significant finding, I feel, and this study was published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. 
It focused on patients reporting extreme breathlessness. This is why I do not want to get COVID is because I get severe respiratory infections. They, they get me. Some people get gastrointestinal ones. When I get sick, it goes to my chest. And I don't want to be on puffers and I don't want to have difficulty breathing and I don't want to be sick. Basically, I don't want to miss out on life. But as I mentioned, this particular study that was published in the Journal of Royal Society of Medicine focused on those patients who reported extreme breathlessness, cognitive dysfunction, and poor health-related quality of life. 536 long COVID patients were included in the study. That's pretty significant. 13% were hospitalized when first diagnosed with COVID-19, while 32% of people taking part in the study were healthcare workers. This is why a lot of people are leaving nursing. They're leaving medicine. They're leaving other respiratory therapy. It's too much. It's too hard. And the risk is significant. Of those 536 patients, 62% were identified with organ impairment six months after their initial diagnosis. And these patients were followed up six months later with a 40-minute multi-organ MRI scan that was analyzed in Oxford. And the findings found that 29% of patients with long COVID had multi-organ impairment. So that's not just one. That's your brain, your lungs, and your kidney, perhaps. That means going to the doctor. That means medical bills. That means time off of work. That means long-term disability, potentially. There are a lot of risk factors to this. Also, these patients had persistent symptoms and reduced function at 6 and 12 months. So people are suffering for a year and potentially longer. The study only followed them up after 12 months. And 59% of long COVID patients had single organ impairment 12 months after the initial diagnosis. And remember, it did not matter how severe your COVID diagnosis was at the time. A lot of people are very blasé about COVID-19 these days. The study reported a reduction in symptoms between 6 and 12 months from in the extreme breathlessness from 38% to 30% of patients. So some patients did get better. The cognitive dysfunction, it improved by about 10% after 6 months, between 6 and 12 months. And the poor health-related quality of life went from 57% to 45% of patients. It's not really that, that optimistic. It's not really that hopeful when you look at those statistics. And there are so many studies that confirm persistence of symptoms in individuals with long COVID up to a year. And three in five people with long COVID have impairment in at least one organ, and one in four have impairment in two or more organs some cases, patients didn't have any symptoms at all. This is a major concern for people. This is something we need to be thinking about. We need to, it's going to have an impact on our health systems and our economies as well. Uh, when we're looking at a large number of healthcare workers who had no prior illness but are still symptomatic at follow up and off of work for an average of 180 days, I mean, this should really seriously wake us up. I mean, honestly, when I go into a public place or I get on a plane, I am literally one of the 10% of people that is wearing a mask, a KN95 mask. Um, I've always worn that type because I want the best protection possible. I use a new one. I don't pick it up off the floor of my car. (laughs) I try and use a new one every day. Um, And sometimes twice a day, 
as well. I think it's become a part of my life and it's become a part of a lot of people's lives. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to get COVID. I may, God forbid, but I, but I'm taking as many precautions as I possibly can. And with this study, I, it gives me just one more reason why I do not want to get long COVID. And I hope you don't want to get long COVID either. And I really don't care what people think about me if I have a mask on, because I'm sure people are judging me. But as my mother always said, no one knows you're living. It sounds harsh, but it's true. People are thinking about themselves. And if somebody is thinking about my mask and worrying about how bad I look in it or whatever, how different I look in it, okay, oh well, let them let them wonder all they want. Anyway, my suggestion is to continue wearing masks, especially if you are in a public place, if you're at a concert, if you are at an airport, if you're on a plane, or if you are otherwise in an enclosed space where there's lots of people. We have a question. What percent of current COVID cases get long COVID? Well, according to a study in The Lancet, one in eight uh, is affected by long COVID affects one in eight people who are diagnosed with COVID-19. I have seen studies, quote, up to 33% of people who have diagnosed with uh, COVID-19 can can get long COVID and it can affect, as you heard, many different organs in the body. Um, but right now I want to um, flip this a little bit, head head a little bit south from the lungs to the uh, rectum, basically. And I think um, if you missed it, um, Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> his uh, he went and had his um, colonoscopy and he shared that with people to raise awareness about colorectal cancer or colon cancer. It's one of the only illnesses that you can be diagnosed and treated with the same procedure, and that's a colonoscopy. And and he mentioned that he had a couple of polyps removed at the time of his colonoscopy. And so this is something we really need to think about as well. Colorectal cancer is a disease where the cells in the colon or the rectum grow out of control. The colon is your large intestine or your large bowel, and the rectum is the passageway that connects the colon to the anus little anatomy lesson there for you. And oftentimes people can get abnormal growths. These are known as polyps and they form in the colon or the rectum. And these may, these polyps may turn into cancer and screening tests can find polyps so they can be removed before they turn into cancer. And so the colonoscopy is um, a screening uh, procedure that uh, is advisable for you to have from the age of 40. Um, there's a number of different risk factors, and um, your your risk of getting colorectal cancer increases as you age. And some of the other risk factors include having inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. If you have a family history of colorectal cancer or colorectal polyps, it's a good idea to get checked as well. Uh, there is a genetic syndrome such as familial adenomatose polyposis or hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer or Lynch syndrome. There are some other um, life situations that may increase your risk or contribute to an increased risk of colorectal cancer, and that includes lack of regular physical activity, 
a diet that is low in fruit and vegetables, a low fiber and high fat diet, or a diet or a diet that is high in processed meats. How much beef do you eat <laughs> during the week? I mean, you really shouldn't have it more than once a week if you must have it at all. I'm sorry, Alberta. Um, if you are overweight or are obese, that that will also increase your risk of colorectal cancer. Alcohol and or tobacco use will also increase your uh, risk of colorectal cancer as well. So what are some of the things you can do to reduce um, that risk? Of course, diet. Um, improve your diet. As I mentioned, make some healthy choices. That's one of the one of the best things that you can do, healthy life choices, reduce your alcohol consumption, stop smoking, increase your physical activities, and, and alter your diet to include fruits and vegetables and whole grains. That will also help to reduce the risk of other diseases like coronary artery disease and diabetes as well. But there's some evidence to support that it can reduce the risk of colorectal cancer also. And so you really want to Make an appointment with your doctor. Go and see your doctor if you have some of these symptoms. But sometimes colorectal cancer doesn't cause any symptoms at all. But if you have symptoms, you might experience something like a change in bowel habits, blood in or on your stool or your, uh, when you have a bowel movement, diarrhea, constipation, or feeling that the bowel does not empty all the way. You might also get abdominal pain or aches or cramps that don't go away. Some of these are like, you might be constipated and just have cramps, but you know what? If this doesn't go away, it's persistent, it's a good idea to uh, have a check-in with your doctor. If you have unexplained weight loss, that is oftentimes a sign of cancer. And so that is definitely something something for you to have um, checked out. There are some screening tests, and, and regular screening you know, should begin at age 40, 45, and that is the key to preventing colorectal cancer. You want to find it early. Um, and the actually, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends adults age 45 to 75 be screened for colorectal cancer. And above age 75, speak to your doctor about screening. Um, if you have inflammatory bowel disease or a family history or the, a genetic syndrome associated with colorectal cancer, then it's um, definitely advisable to begin screening and find out which test is right for you. Um, sometimes people have occult blood in their stool, and so you can actually check your stool with, um, with a simple home test as well. Um, and, um, you know, there are some questions that you should ask, um, you know, ask your doctor. What screening test do you recommend for me? How do I prepare? Do I need to change my diet or usual medication before taking the test? What is involved in this particular test? Will it be uncomfortable or painful? Are there any risks involved with this test? And, and how will I get the results? Who will do the exam? And will I need somebody with me? That's always a very important question when you um, go and have a procedure done. I, I don't think I have enough time to share my story when I didn't bring somebody with me <laughs> and, um, and had a, a screening test. <laughs> Had a test, if you will. Anyway, that's for another segment. But I will, I will tell you that story one time because it was actually, you know, a good learning situation for me, and um, and potentially for you too. So I'll, I promise, maybe next week I'll tell you that story. But you got questions, she's got answers. The nurse is in for nurse talk. 
Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Before I get into introducing my guests and telling you about what we have coming up on this hour, I just wanted to answer a text message that I received about the last uh, segment. And the question is, how effective is the simple at-home testing kits for colon cancer? If you're just joining us now, we were talking about colon cancer and the risks of getting colon cancer um, in the last segment. So, um, you know, at-home tests, they can be an effective form of colorectal cancer screening, but the tests are not able to detect all polyps or all cases of colorectal cancer. It's part of an overall screening strategy. So stool tests cannot accurately detect polyps like a colonoscopy can. So this means that the test may be negative when a person actually has an abnormal polyp. So, you know, it's one part of a screening plan. Definitely talk to your doctor about that. Thank you so much for uh, texting in and feel free to text in your questions to 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. So in this hour, we're going to be talking about sexual dreams who hasn't had those and who hasn't been a little curious or confused when they woke up after one of those we're going to be talking about that in the second half hour of the program and also going to be talking about the important conversations you need to have in your relationships but right now at a time when confidence is in medical science is probably quite possibly at its lowest it's ever been we turn to tiktok for particular trends and advice. (laughs) There is a man on TikTok and it has gone viral and he has decided to lose weight by going to McDonald's and eating exclusively McDonald's food. Joining me on the line to discuss this is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. You've heard her voice before. She is a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She's also a speaker, trainer, and writer. She helps people prevent burnout in the workplace, and she's all about physical health, mental health, emotional health. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. How are you? Good evening. I'm doing great. And you? That's great. When was your last McDonald's meal? (laughs) Oh, great question. Um, Actually, I had my first one this year about two weeks ago on traveling. I was at an airport. I didn't have much options. You know what I'm always amazed at? I know. You know what? I love good filet of fish and hot fries at McDonald's, but I'm always amazed at the Chick-fil-A lineup in the airports. Um, But uh, McDonald's, it's not something I I typically eat, but um, one time I remember I was starving like you, and I was on the line with somebody, and they said, who knew me pretty well, and I was just like, you know, can I get a burger and fries? (laughs) He's like, what? Mm -hmm. Maureen McGrath is in the McDonald's lineup. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, it's it's rare. It's very rare for me, and I honestly can't even remember. It's been at least a year. But um, but you know what? We all fall prey to that. And um, knowing that it's unhealthy, probably, I don't, I mean, you look at everything on there. They give you the calorie counts. And anyway, you know it's deadly. But there is a gentleman who has become the latest TikTok sensation, and he is exclusively eating. McDonald's, that's all he's going to eat. And he has lost about 12 and a half pounds in a few weeks. So, you know, fair enough. He's probably going to lose weight because, you know, maybe he's limiting what he's consuming. But but it's very unhealthy food. We know that. It's high in saturated fats. And, you know, it's basically every choice is, is cooked in grease. So 
that's one thing to be able to lose 12 and a half pounds in a few weeks um, from McDonald's. But what's the long term? What, what are the risks and what are, what are your thoughts on this as a diet method, as a, as a physician? I would say, disclaimer, please don't try this at home. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what his diet was pre this pre this McDonald's bitch. Maybe he was eating like 7,000 calories, 5,000 calories, 7,000, who knows, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of, it's TikTok. Um, I highly, really don't recommend it. I think McDonald's attempted at salads and things, maybe like when I was 16 years old. I think they're off. They're gone, right? They don't, there's nothing. I don't think they have them, yeah. Not anymore, right? So your options no. are limited. So I, I, it's not a balanced diet. And we know that, Speaking of colorectal cancer, a diet high in saturated fat, animal protein, um, can increase your risk of colorectal cancer in a diet of low fiber. So there's not a whole lot of fiber in McDonald's food. Mm-hmm. And what about, you know, it, maybe it's helping him on the outside because I believe this gentleman was quite obese, is quite obese, um, and is inspired by his 12 and a half pound weight loss early on. But so we can see from the outside potentially, and what the yeah. scale says. But what is what is that food that is oh. deep fried most of it, oh. and you know in grease and high fat? Yeah. What's it doing to the arteries? It's clogging them. Like it is full of sludge, like cholesterol, um, irritating the lining, causing inflammation, more plaque buildup, increases your risk of heart attacks, stroke, to name a few, diabetes. Like it's. It could affecting his vision, any organ in his body. So it's not pretty. And not to mention the mental health. We know that eating a balanced diet really does improve your concentration, your focus. And um, sorry to break it to McDonald's fans, this is not a balanced diet. Mm-hmm. And and so he's actually increasing his risk of um, heart attack and that kind of thing. Some people think that it's all about weight. If I just lose weight, if mm. I if I do this crazy diet, if I do this fad diet, and the scale is, uh, you know, happy, the scale, I like the number that I see on the scale, then all is well, especially if you lose weight rapidly. And a lot of the fad diets, you know, people will lose weight um, quite quickly, the grapefruit diet and um, you know, there's a particular soup diet. I can't remember. Cabbage um, soup. <laughs> the, the cabbage soup diet, which, which wasn't yeah. probably the worst mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because it did have a lot of vegetables, but that's all you could eat. Um, you know, the the South Beach diet, is. Yeah, I, I think I would put that into a category of um, a fad diet as well. But that one helped to control hunger. That's the biggest thing is people are hungry. But is it just about the number on the scale or is it what no. you consume in uh, your body? Yes, it's the type of food you consume. It's when you consume it. It's how you consume it, as in how you prepare it. There's many factors, and you could one can lose weight, but it's water weight. Um, boxers mm-hmm. do that all the time. Um, it could be losing more muscle than you are fat, which we do not want um, muscle loss. You could be losing bone density if you really do this long enough. So, and that's mm-hmm. not good. So, mm-hmm. no, there's more to, to it than numbers. Absolutely. And there's all sorts of different fad diets. People are very interested in um, his eating McDonald's because I think we'd all like to eat McDonald's guilt-free. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and, um, are good. <laughs> yeah, a- a- absolutely. Especially when they're super hot. 
Um, The paleo diet, for example, the the purest form, the paleolithic diet, more commonly known as the caveman diet. So that, that only allows foods that we ate when we first roamed the planet half a million years ago. So like fish, lean meats, fruit, non-starchy vegetables, and nuts. Um, how, how difficult is something like that to maintain? I mean, super easy to maintain the McDonald's diet, but how difficult would be the paleo diet for people? Well, um, right now with fish and nuts and vegetables, it's kind of challenging with the cost of food. Like I'm just keeping it real. Like, um, but it's more realistic than what this, gentleman is doing um that's a it's a healthy choice it's almost like a mediterranean diet right because you're eating the fruits, mm-hmm. vegetables lean meats eggs and the seeds are amazing so i think it's sustainable you just have to be determined to eat that rainbow because that's pretty much what you're doing that's why i tell my patients eat a rainbow your, your plate should be more than just like brown and white it needs color so um I think if you put your mind to it, it is very possible. And then, obviously, with budgeting, buy things on sale. Because I understand inflation is real, especially when you go get to the grocery store. So, yeah. It certainly is. And that's one of the problems with um, the fast food restaurants is that it's cheap. It's easy in yeah. a busy world, you know, where people don't have a lot of disposable income. Um, they can gravitate toward um, fast food like that. Just just quickly, the Atkins diet would you consider the Atkins diet a, you know, where you can eat bacon, all the bacon you want and, and scrambled eggs? Um, <laughs> it, it was a very popular diet with 20 grams of carbs a day, and you gradually increase the amount each week. What do you think of that? I think that's another way to possibly mess up your body. I think it's too much cholesterol. Again, you're not looking at what's in the food, right, and how it's made. So, yeah, it's very low carb, but the body still needs carbs, right? The body breaks mm-hmm. down carbs to make glucose to feed your brain. So um, don't recommend it. I'm not a fan of fad diets, period. I understand people do it because they want to fit into something quickly, but it's not a sustainable way of maintaining a healthy weight. You actually need to move and do other things like yeah, exercise. My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. For years, government agencies in Canada and other nations have recommended that anyone capable of exercising should exercise moderately for at least 150 minutes a week for optimal health. And they define moderate exercise by a brisk walk or similar exertions that elevate your heart rate and breathing enough that conversation becomes difficult. So what this converts to is walking briskly for half an hour, five times a week. But most of us don't do that. We don't have the time. And that's according to the latest federal statistics, which show that only about half of adults exercise enough. So this sobering statistic prompted some researchers to begin looking into the effects of smaller amounts of exercise. And that's why I have invited Dr. Tommy Mitchell on the program tonight to talk to us about the benefits of smaller amounts of exercise. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. What do you think of this latest study that says we really don't have to walk that much (laughs) in order to benefit from it? Tell us about that, please. I have mixed feelings. I'm very happy that, you know, the study shows that just 11 minutes, like we all have 11 minutes, go up the park further, go up the stairs, while watching TV, jog on the spot. I run around my house sometimes, um, just to get those steps in. So 
11 minutes, what is the excuse? Like, it makes such a huge impact to our health. And, and in this particular study, which was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, found that just 11 minutes of walking every day could lower your risk of premature death by almost 25%. percent hmm Which, that is pretty significant. And I'm going to be honest here. Today, I mean, I read about this earlier in the week, and, um, and I knew we were going to talk about it on the show. And today I was rushing m- multiple modes of transportation and trains and Uber. And I decided to, I took a look at where I was going, and I thought, you know what? I have about <laughs> 11 minutes that I can walk before I get into an Uber. And I did mm. that. So just little mindful things like that maybe can help to change people's approach cuz cuz i think 150 minutes a week sounds daunting for for most yeah. people if they feel they might feel pressure to do that definitely but that's that's a goal got to look at where you're starting right making those small steps and measuring them and repeating them as your body gets stronger you know it gets to the like i definitely get those steps now but i mean i just was more creative Right, and mindful. Just like you're mindful of your you know, your dollars you're spending, you should be mindful of how much you move your feet. And you know, for those who don't have mobility, there are other ways to exercise because I'm mindful that we all have different levels of um physical ability. So let's make it a habit. I I gotta put this plug in. I've been a Fitbit fan for like since twenty fifteen and that has really helped me because we do these um fitness challenges where you get to run keep track of steps and see who's wins. They're taking it away. For me, it's a bummer because that really, that community helped me stay motivated. Just knowing that these ladies, a lot of them were retired and I was still working. They really went hard and that encouraged me. So accountability, buddy, partners, devices, get a community, have a bigger purpose, bigger than just losing weight. Like, and associate it with emotion, like you want to see your grandkids um, get married or whatever it is, that will push you more towards doing it. But you got to find your why. Because exercise honestly can be fun from the girl who hated gym class. Oh. <laughs> I just had to put that in there. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who hate gym class, even yeah. those who do like to exercise. Um, yes. Getting into that uniform was the worst. But, um, yes. you know, the the thing is, is that you make a, such a good point about walking. You know, keep walking because if you don't keep walking, you it's going to be harder and harder to get up and get moving. And even doing squats is extremely helpful to build muscle. And even, you know, doing like uh, build up to 10 sets of 10 squats a day, very, very helpful. So speaking of physical exercise, um, there was also... Uh, Another uh, study that came out about the brain health benefits of exercise. And so you touched upon it a little bit, but it's not just important to exercise for your body, and but it's also important for your mind. 100%. And you know me, I, I believe brain health, mental fitness is like the foundation for health. So definitely exercise is a good thing for our brain. Um, you release good hormones that help you feel better, reduce your stress, and there are known benefits like decreasing anxiety, 
improving your function with um, focusing and concentration, even helps grow new brain cells, and really prevents, well, reduces your risk for um, significant aging diseases called neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, which we um, is in the media a lot. Absolutely. And I did see something recently that said that exercise can help prolong the lives of cancer patients as well. Yes. And so yes. we're seeing more and more benefits to exercise. And, you know, you just feel so fantastic when when you're exercising, when no matter what it is, just try to find something. And even I just wanted to mention, like, quitting smoking. A lot of people yeah. have difficulty quitting smoking, but if they can find something, an exercise that they enjoy, that whenever they think of um, having a cigarette, they could go out and take a walk or hit some balls or play some tennis or pickleball. It's a fast becoming a popular sport um, in Canada and around the world as well and some of the retirement areas, but not just retirement areas. A lot of people are playing all different ages. I'm a tennis yeah. player, so I'm not switching over to, to pickleball ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> my plug for tennis, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm playing four or five hours of tennis a week, I'm, I'm at my optimum. Like, I feel fantastic. I feel amazing. Um, I have a great coach as well, but <laughs> mm-hmm. aside from that, um, you know, but find something that you love, that you love to do. It is so important, and it's so important to stay young. And to keep young. Anyway, Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining the program once My again. Pleasure. Really appreciate your input and um, stay away from McDonald's, eh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded very Canadian, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Keep up the exercise and the great work. <laughs> thank you. Hopefully, this little segment will keep you awake. We're talking about dreams, we're talking about sex dreams, in fact. Everybody wants to know what their dreams mean, whether they are sex dreams or not. You've heard those people, I want to tell you about my dream that I had last night, and I always often think, oh, I really don't want to hear about it. It means nothing to me. But anyway, turns out it actually could mean something. If you've ever woken up confused or maybe even slightly aroused about why your dreams were full of steamy sex scenes with you as the main character, you are not alone. I want to tell you what our sex dreams can tell us about our lives. There is definitely a meaning behind different sex dreams. We have sex dreams with strangers. We have have them with exes. We have them that involve oral sex and also in the tub or that those that involve dirty talk as well. And so if you've ever wondered why, you're listening to the right segment. How about sex with a stranger or an acquaintance? What that might suggest, it might mean that your libido is high and or that you're not getting your needs met. And there is something that you can do about that. You don't want to look too much into this dream, but because it might be a time in your life when your libido is high, things are going pretty well, you may actually feel like you might need it a little bit more. And if you're in a relationship, you want to talk to your partner about that. That is a very good place to start. Let them know how you're feeling, what you want more of but you want to be sensitive to the fact that they may not feel the same way. Desire discrepancy is very common, and two people in a relationship are not necessarily going to be on the same page all the time about desire. How about those recurring sex dreams with an ex? Oh, yes, we've all had them, haven't we? And you're 
may wake up perplexed thinking, what the heck? Oh my gosh, I'm so over that person or I had a very acrimonious relationship with that person. I never want to see that person again. And yet they keep coming to me literally in my dreams. So depending on how often you're having these dreams and how long you've been split from your ex, they could mean anything from getting used to new partners to unresolved grief about an ex. So it's something that you may actually want to talk to somebody about, a healthcare professional, for example, if it is something that is bothering you. So if you're fresh off of a breakup, give yourself some time to adjust to having sex with a new partner. But if it's been several months or even years since your breakup and you still have those dreams, as I say, you might need to work with a professional about it. There's also times when people who are do, do not typically engage in oral sex have dreams about oral sex. And what that might mean is that you were raised with covert messages or even direct messages that oral sex is dirty or that it's bad or disgusting and unwanted. But on some level, you might secretly desire it. Many people are averse to giving oral sex, and I see that in my clinical practice. That's an issue in a lot of relationships, although some of these people love receiving it. So it's a little bit of an unfair play, if you know what I'm saying. But this, again, it's very important to encourage an open discussion between you and your partner and explore the causes for the aversion and if there's anything that can be done to make things a little bit more comfortable. So have you ever had a dream that you had sex with your teacher? That's a very common sex dream as well. And it may be an indicator of a person who, for instance, had a very charming narcissistic father who deprived them of the attention and love that they needed. And so it might mean, might, and I really underscore that word, um, that they fantasize about the all-encompassing feeling of being fully loved by an authority figure. And so there's something that you can do about this as well. If you're having the dream because you desire or crave the attention of an authority figure, it's a good idea to take some time to figure out who it really is that you want to be loved by. And depending on the relationship with this particular person and whether or not you have conflict, you might just be able to write it off, ignore it, or you may want to talk to a professional about working through these feelings. You know, it's always good to process feelings. When we talk about things, we, we process the pain and, you know, we get to the other side and we get to a healthier aspect of living our lives and especially we're a healthier person in a relationship. So it's always a good idea to process things that have occurred to us or especially if you've been in a past relationship. Um, you know, you want to actually not jump into another relationship. I have so many people in my clinical practice, dare I say, mostly men who want to jump into the next relationship. In fact, they get into another relationship before they even get out of the relationship, the toxic relationship that they might be in at the time. And so they jump into the next one. I'm just like, please, you know, hold the phone. It's very important that you deal with these issues in your relationship now so that you don't have those same issues in your next relationship. And it's really about insight and looking into oneself and knowing oneself and, and understanding why they might be a people pleaser or might, what their fears are about, whether it's fear of losing the children or fear of or never seeing the children again or fear of financial loss or, or whatever, but to address those. And, and 
we have a responsibility for the troubles that we have in our relationship. It's never one person. It's actually both people. So that is very important. Um, I cannot stress that enough. Really process what one went through, what you went through, grieve it, go through all of the stages and understand it as well. Know thyself. Very, very important. Some people have sex dreams that involve dirty talk and it surprises them because they're just like, I don't typically talk dirty in my normal life. But people who do this or have these types of dreams may subconsciously wish to be free of their own self-judgments and preoccupation with how others view them, which is very interesting, I found I find. Um, you know, it could be like somebody who's a proper person buttoned up. They want to let go and feel more comfortable in their own skin. We hear a lot about that from, I hear a lot about that from people that they are socially awkward or they're not comfortable in a crowd or, you know, they're uncomfortable at the work party or with work friends, for example, or they need a few drinks to calm down so that they can be more comfortable in their own skin. This is another dream that can be written off as absolutely nothing, or you could also utilize it as a way to explore dirty talk with your partner. It might be a way to spice up your relationship, um, but keep in mind that if your partner is not into dirty talk, there is a potential risk that it could be perceived as distasteful or that it has a negative stigma attached to it. So you, want, you don't want to come right out of the gates and just start talking dirty. <laughs> Again, communication is so important with couples, and so it's a good idea to learn more about the likes and dislikes of your partner. You, you know, your sex dreams don't need to be rooted in deep emotions always or past traumas for them to be a tool to help you to get in touch or more in touch with your own desires and emotions. And even if your sex dreams are on the lighter side, you know, you might want to just tap into their potential meaning and that can help you become more aware of your feelings and your inner desires. These are a normal part of life, sex dreams. And whatever your sex dreams are, those are yours and, and they're very personal. But it could be that your subconscious is working through the last few days of, of your life. And But if they're disturbing to you, and they seem to be happening quite often, you may actually want to see a mental health professional because they can help you to unpack what might be going on. Or it might you might be nervous, for example, if you're dreaming about having sex with your ex, especially if you're, you didn't get along or not getting along or if they were abusive or, um, you know, some other, or you were in a toxic relationship. And that can be extremely um, scary and, and frightening. And so that's when I would suggest that you go to a mental health professional and talk about it because they may be able to allay your fears. You know, embracing your sex dreams can help you to learn a little bit more about yourself. So don't be afraid of, of these sex dreams and take them for what they are. Oftentimes, I would say they mean absolutely nothing. But if you would like to get, gain a little more insight into your life and into your emotional life, then that might be something that you want to explore. Anyway, um, always a very little interesting subject and just something to think about. And again, people think, oh, I'm the only one that has sex dreams, but that's certainly not the case. We are talking, although it's the end of the program, it's very much as important as the first part of the program. The eight conversations that matter most in relationships 
And this is the work of Drs. John and Julie Gottman. This is based on their work. They understand that some conversations matter more than others in relationships. And how do we fall in love? We fall in love because we've connected and we started talking to somebody and you get along well with them and you have similar likes and dislikes and similar desires. But there are some conversations that you should have with your partner to know if your love will last through the challenges, the joys, the pain, the surprises. And believe me, Every single couple will have issues in their relationships, no matter how long you've been together or how long you stay together. And you also have to reinvigorate the connection and passion that first brought you together. But a lot of it may have become routine or sometimes the things that you've loved about somebody at the beginning of a relationship drives you absolutely crazy at the end of a relationship and the relationship might end. But it's so important that we have certain conversations with our partners and the foundation of this is about trust and commitment. What does that mean to you? What is trust and and does that matter? And what trust is cherishing one another and showing your partner that you can be counted on, you can be there, that you're not going to go outside of the relationship, you're not going to cheat. And you may have every intention that you're not going to cheat at the beginning of a relationship and I hear from so many of my patients that have cheated who have said I am not a cheater. I never wanted to cheat. Circumstances led them to this choice um, in their lives, in their relationships. And they have been, a lot of them have regretted it. And a lot of them have found themselves in such hot water as a result of it. But choosing commitment means accepting your partner is exactly as he or she is despite their flaws. But certain things like sexless marriage, that's why I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice who have cheated because they have been enduring a a sexless marriage for a long time. You also want to talk about conflict. And conflict, as I say, happens in every relationship. There's no relationship that is so happy that they are never going to just get along all the time. doesn't happen. It's not real. Relationship conflict has its purpose, and it's an opportunity to get to know your partner better and develop deeper intimacy, but always be respectful during conflict. So you want to talk about how do you deal with conflict, and you want to observe your partner, especially at the early parts of the relationship, early on in the relationship, and to see how they deal with conflict. Are they calm about it? Do they work through their differences with other people? Because that's very important. This subject should probably be the first one, (laughs) sex and intimacy, but I am a little bit biased. It is my field. Um, You know, it's important to talk about sex and intimacy and and exploration and and passion and desire. We don't have those conversations. We're going to walk down the aisle. We're going to share a mortgage and share children, raise children, have children, and then the sex stops. Um, But uh, we're going to do all these things, get involved with friends and you know, make decisions about finances and about life in general, and yet we don't have that conversation about sex and intimacy. And oftentimes people say, you know, the sex stopped after we had the kids. So talk about that. Talking about sex, I can appreciate, is a very difficult subject for the majority of couples. But believe you me, it gets easier and more comfortable the more that you do it. And you just don't want to talk about frequency, but you just want to talk about what it means, what that sexual connection, what that sexual chemistry, that that need, that biological need, that desire, what does that mean to you? 
Another, I think this should be number two as well, because sex and intimacy and this subject are the two areas where couples have the most conflict, and that is money issues. And money issues aren't about money. They're about what money means to each person in a relationship. And believe me, nobody comes to a relationship with the same attitude about money. It has to do with your uh, childhood, how much money you had, how parents viewed money? Did you have plenty of money? Was there no money? Was money respected? Um, You know, you really need to talk about that because money issues will prevail in a relationship if you don't get on the same page. But you really have to discover what money means to both of you. And that will go a long way in resolving the conflicts you may have around money. Another subject that's very important is family. And dare I say, or need, need, I have to say, outlaws. Two-thirds of couples have a sharp drop in relationship satisfaction shortly after a child is born. And this drop gets deeper with each subsequent child. So to avoid this drop in relationship happiness, conflict needs to be low and you need to maintain your sexual relationship. Very, very important advice there. And also, you know, how happy-go-lucky are you? What do you think about play and adventure, travel? What do you think about shaking it up, taking vacation? Play and adventure are vital components to any happy relationship, to a successful relationship, because as I said, relationships aren't happy all the time, but they can be joyful, and this will certainly add some joy to it. So, you know, you might, what are your partner's ideas about play and adventure? What constitutes play and adventure for you? And the key is, You don't have to do all the same things. You don't have to both be tennis players and skiers and boaters and golfers and everything. You might like to ski. They might like to snowboard. You might like to sail. They might like a powerboat. You might like to play golf. They might like pitch and putt. Um, And so it's it's very different, and that's okay. But you want to respect each other's sense of adventure and what that means, what it means to your partner. The only constant in a relationship is change and how each person accommodates the growth of the other partner. And you know what? Sometimes one partner doesn't grow at all. In fact, they stay stuck in the age of the child they were where a trauma may have occurred. And that can be very frustrating as one person develops and grows spiritually in the relationship or developmentally. And, you know, people mature. And they, you know, oftentimes I see couples who stayed up really late before the kids were born and then tried to, you know, carry that over after the babies were born, realizing that they can't do that anymore. You know, there are certain things that you, you know, you just have to grow up, but sometimes people don't. And, you know, one of the big issues is partying and partying goes on even after the kids are born, but one takes more responsibility and becomes the hyper or super responsible one. So you want to talk about how you're going to grow and develop and change over time and as as you both age. And so that is so important in a relationship. And and you don't realize it because time goes by so quickly. I mean, here we are. I can't believe we're March 5th already. It just seems like Christmas was yesterday. But, you know, you can be super busy and then one is growing and the other, the other isn't. The other thing that's important, and we touched upon this a little bit, uh, dreams. And, and not the kind that when you go to sleep at night, but the dreams you have for your life. It's a secret ingredient to creating love for a lifetime. So honor each other's dreams. Talk about what your partner's dreams are. Do they want to build a cabin in the woods? Do they want to get a boat one day? Do they want to 
be able to put all their children through university? Do they want to put their grandchildren through university? You know, what is it? Do they want to leave something, an, an inheritance for their children? Do they want to leave something behind? What are your partner's dreams? Very important to know that. Every single strong relationship is a result of continuous conversation between partners. Communication is critical. You need to learn how to talk about these issues with your partner, but even more important to learn how to listen. And listening is very, very challenging. We're not good at it. We're dying to say something. We want to interrupt. We want to be right. Sometimes you want to be right instead of being happy. And I think choosing happiness over being right is a very good decision. But if you have the conversations, the important conversations that you need to have with your partner ongoing, not just before you walk down the aisle, but as you enter the marriage, as you enter the relationship, and as you continue on down that pathway, having those conversations will be beneficial for you, not only as a couple, but also as an individual. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.